This is a Federal News Network podcast. A recent list in Forbes magazine of 500 of the best mid-sized employers in the United States included a couple of federal agencies, among them the government publishing office. For an update on what this congressional agency has been up to, we turn to Director Hugh Halpern. Mr. Halpern, good to have you back. It's always great to be back. Thanks for having me, Tom. So GPO made the list. Uh, you weren't near the top of the list, but you were on the list of 500. I should point out another congressional agency, GAO, is a little bit higher, but we're talking to you today here. We are just happy to be on the list. It's our first time on the Forbes list, and we are really honored to be there. And it's a real credit to our team here at GPO and the way we've been able to work through the pandemic and the culture we've been able to craft here at the agency. And talk about how you are situated at this point in the waning days of the pandemic. I was there early on and the place was mostly empty and we went through masks seeing some of the facilities. But who's there? Who's not there? What's the status now? So we are really at full production at the moment. We've got about a thousand people who come to work. That's about two thirds of our workforce. The other third, the vast majority of them are full-time telework or some sort of hybrid telework or remote work. And for us, it's not too terribly different than I think it will be a couple of weeks from now, a month from now, a year from now. I think you're going to see a situation where the folks who need to come in because they're production employees, they work with the machines that produce the congressional record, the Federal Register, U.S. passports, and all of the other products that we produce, they have to be on site. And they've been on site throughout the pandemic. You know, the congressional record, we still had to publish that even at the height of the pandemic. Same with the Federal Register. And while we took a little bit of time to make sure we could do passports safely. We've been producing them at pretty much full tilt since last summer. So they've all been coming to work. And our folks who are teleworking, our teammates, they've been doing a fantastic job. We have seen big productivity increases. And I think folks are happier in this kind of new environment. And we've actually been able to start experimenting with some things. We did not renew the lease on our Chicago office space because most of our teammates in Chicago are full-time teleworking. And instead, what we did was we contracted with a co-working space so that we could try that as a format. And we're very interested to see the results because we think our teammates are going to have access to more and, frankly, higher quality office space than we could provide with nicer amenities, and hopefully that'll also help their productivity. So we're, we're really interested in seeing this through and the potential for really changing the way sure. that we've worked as an agency in the future. And the people that are mostly or full-time teleworking now in Chicago or wherever, could be the D.C. area, those are mainly people in policy, procurement, that kind of thing? Right. So the neat thing about GPO is we've got folks from sort of all ends of the spectrum. So on the one hand, I've got artisanal bookbinders who work in the methods that were developed thousands of years ago. On the other hand, I've got software developers and policy folks and librarians and all sorts of folks who don't physically need to be in the building. So the vast majority of our telework folks are finance folks, they're human resources folks, they are engineers, they're software developers and designers and everything in between. 
We're speaking with Hugh Halpern. He is the director of the government publishing office. And what would you say makes other people say that work there that it's a good place to work enough to make a list of 500 out of tens of thousands of possibilities? Well, Tom, I think we're known for our culture. And one of the things that when I came to the agency a little over two years ago, everybody talked about the GPO family. And frankly, I was a little worried when we went into the pandemic. Are we going to lose a little bit of that close kind of camaraderie? And the fact of the matter is, is I think it has evolved and it is definitely different than it was when I first got here. But we've still got that same kind of close-knit situation where everybody relies on everybody else. And whether you're working in production, whether you're on the line producing passports or uh, printing the Federal Register, or you're working with a team trying to build out GovInfo, which is our trusted digital repository where folks can go online to get free government information, I think everybody knows that they rely on everybody else. And it's that kind of close-knit camaraderie that I think really contributes to the kind of culture where people want to work. And, you know, we're hoping to uh, attract folks to GPO. We've got a number of open positions that we're trying to hire for. And we've been able to attract the kinds of folks that we think are going to make GPO a great place going into the future. A couple of detail questions. You mentioned the passport production and State Department had problems during the pandemic and now a backlog had developed. Are you able to ramp up to get that backlog of production done okay? Because I'm wondering about the supply chain of chips, say, that are in the passports. How's that all going? So we work very, very closely both with our State Department customer and with our other supply chain partners, some of whom are feds and a lot of folks are are in the private sector. And I'm not going to say it wasn't challenging, but we've got a really, really good team involved in the design and production of the U.S. passport. And we were fairly creative in developing that product and making sure that we could meet the State Department's needs there. And there were a number of things going on all at once. Part of it was the State Department's ability to work through the backlog and personalize passports, but there's also a change of product going on there. So the e-passport, the electronic passport that most people have at this point, that was getting phased out. We were bringing on board the next generation passport product that we designed with the Department of State. And as those two products, one was ramping down, the other was ramping up, there were always issues of trying to balance the quantities. And we were able to meet State Department's needs there. But we're really happy that uh, we're mostly transitioned over to the next generation passport, which is frankly the most advanced identity document that you're going to find anywhere in the world. But it still has a physical manifestation you can hold and put in your breast pocket. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know I've talked to friends who've recently gotten passports and they've gotten a next generation passport and you can tell the difference, but the identity page is a little bit different than what you might have seen in the past. But it's a great product and we're really pleased that we can work with the State Department to produce that for Americans. And how has the supply chain been for the paper, the inks, and the various specialized products that GPO uses in production of books and things like the Federal Register and the Congressional Record? 
paper is in very short supply, and it is a constant challenge, but we have both great teams here in our production departments, and frankly, our acquisitions team is very, very good at sort of combing the, the nation to find what we need. But I'd be kidding you if I didn't say it was hard sometimes to make sure that we've got everything that we need. But there's one case where one of our GPO teammates realized that we had very wide rolls of paper down in our warehouse, and that if we were able to cut that paper in half, we would actually extend the supply of paper we would need for some of the products we printed. So we've got a whole bunch of talent here at GPO. And that's just one example of the kinds of creative problem solving that they can come up with that really let us come up with some creative solutions to uh, to meet our customers' needs. So in that case, you run the roll through a press with no plates and just operate the slitter. Well, we actually sent that out to uh, another company that would split the roll for us, but uh, <laughs> but it was actually a huge find, and it actually extended our uh, paper supply by a number of weeks. So it was just a good example of the kind of ingenuity that uh, that our team's able to come up with day after day. Hugh Halpern is director of the Government Publishing Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Tom. It is always great to talk to you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and was so much advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.